1987, three scientists, one from Cambridge and two from Oxford, was brought together by their shared passion for markets and computers. And little did they know that this passion would, over the next three decades, lead them to build three world-leading multi-billion dollar systematic investment firms. Today, I continue to share another golden nugget from my conversation with Michael Adam, David Harding and Marty Lurk, also known as the founders of AHL. In this clip, we focus on how markets and the importance of asset allocation have evolved since they got started. A crucial insight to what have made them so successful. So sit back and relax and enjoy these truly unique takeaways from my conversation with Michael, David and Marty. And if you would like to listen to the full conversation, and I hope you do, just go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash RT11. That is where the conversation starts. <laughs> Maybe on a on a on a related uh, question. I mean, historically at least, the raw price of of a market has been the only input in systematic models, certainly in the trend following space. And the universe of markets have also been very well defined, being highly liquid, exchange traded, like futures on on CME. But tell me, how have you evolved when it comes to the data you use and the markets you trade? We trade a lot of equities and we use a lot of other data sources, mm. basically. What could they be? Oh, you got me there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, 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 most of the risk is on fairly, is, is on still on endogenous variables like, you know, price interrelationships inter between markets and various, you know, convolutions of the price, you know, sectors and this sort of sure. thing, you know. We, we have sort of, obviously, we have all the balance sheet data, all the fundamental data, we have all the weather data, we have all the, you know, th there's all sorts of different types of data. But not, it doesn't have, a, at the moment, there's, we have a lot of experimental systems with small mm -hmm. amounts of, small amounts of money on them. Sure. Um, I expect we have one or two bigger allocations with key data inputs, but those I'm, um, I'm keeping doing to myself. <laughs> what, what about you, Marty? Are you looking in new directions when it comes to data and, 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 and markets, so to speak? And, and maybe I can follow up because that's my next sort of point I wanted to ask is a little bit about are you also moving off exchange and, and, and what's the motivation for doing that? And also what are the risks you have to, to take into account if, if, if indeed you are? Well, so first question is, is data and evolution of of the trading programs and and you know of course we have an appetite for for new ideas new influences on markets new effects as as david says if we knew what the next big thing was <laughs> we wouldn't tell you we, we, we wouldn't tell you and and it wouldn't be research I think there's a, there's a lot of hype these days that you know with with machine learning techniques and all this just explosion of, of new data sources that surely the answer's in there somewhere and if you just you know leave it to the the folks at Google you know the, the answer will will be become immediately apparent my view is it's a little bit harder than that there's plenty of work to be done and there's plenty of opportunity so I'm not going to claim that we've got some fantastic new system that uh, employs satellite data and engages a recursive neural net and presto 
we know what's happening tomorrow and next week. Mm -hmm. But I, so, no, it is overhyped. But on the other hand, it's there. That data mm -hmm. exists, and there's a more more information out there than there's ever been, ever. Mm -hmm. And you need to work out how to assimilate, how to digest, and how to use that stuff. So one yeah. of the experience, one of the things our experience has taught all of us is the danger of hindsight bias or overfitting mm -hmm. to data sets. Mm -hmm. And this, you saw this recently in a rich data set, or maybe five or six years ago. There's Google Trends is a huge and rich new data set, obviously, vast amount of data about the number of Google searches and Google mm -hmm. developed an algorithm, didn't they, which forecast when there were going to be flu academics. It made the front page of all the newspapers. Mm -hmm. It made the BBC News. And, um, you know, this is somewhere between annoying and intimidating, you know, when, you're a <laughs> when your entire career has been based around, you know, time series analysis and yep. you see, you know, these claims being made. Obviously, what we think is, you know, oh, I wonder if they've really... You know, I wonder if they've really Crikey. tested that against their fitting. Of course, it fell apart. It didn't work at yeah, all. Yeah. It didn't work at all. Yeah. So, so because of overfitting. So there's an example of you know Google, a company which is renowned for its sort of engineering mm. ability, mining a new, rich new data source, getting a massive amount of publicity, and then it's you know completely failing. Mm. Uh, and that's not a mistake that... Well, I think, you know, I, th I think all all three of us have a healthy paranoia around operating in markets that comes from real experience of... When I gave the example of um, market, you know, when I... Even in an area where I thought it was safe, it turned out that it wasn't safe. Um, that, and that was... If I needed a reminder that one's counterparts in markets are not one's friends, then that was the sharp reminder. So I think those things have always applied and will always apply. You can't research those away. There's a big difference between counterparty and client, and this is something that the investment banks got very confused, got themselves confused about back in uh, yeah. pre-2008 so. era. Counterpart counterparties are not clients. Yes. Mm. So so there's a, you know, I, th I, I, think, I think there's a sort of, I think all three of us, have, have been good and learnt um, on, on that score, and I don't think that that is going to, to change anytime soon. And I think a lot of a lot of the apparently new emerging science, you know, science in the space is 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 naive with respect to that. I mean, the way I, so the num the number of times all of us will have heard this, you know, fresh faced research comes in, so they found the most amazing systematic trading strategy. Each trade has a a sixty six percent probability of being right, and and you literally can't lose money. And the great thing is, I'm going to be trading in the FX market, so it's infinitely liquid, and there's absolutely no risk. But then the question I would always observe is, so how much money can you manage? And if something, let's say the answer was, oh, well, we can easily manage $200 million in that, you know, whatever the answer would be. And then say, so do you think it's worthwhile to the people with whom you trade to steal $200 million from you? To which the answer is, yes, I think it is. Well, with a 64% probability trading signal. That is exactly what they will do, because that's their job, which is to remove anything with such a high edge that the signal flow itself is valuable. And the markets are brilliant at doing that, and that's good, because it makes them more efficient. So uh, when looking for systematic trading strategies, what you need to do is to find something that is fantastically mediocre. Mm -hmm because it's not useful at an individual signal level to your counterparts. And that means computers are really bad at finding those things, because it's a real self-discipline 
to understand that that's the challenge you face in systematic trading. It's not to be really, really good. It's not to be useful mm. to markets. I mean, it sounds to me like you're a little bit skeptical about learning. That's, that's why it's a difficult discipline. Mm. Skeptical is putting it too too strongly. It's okay. uh, cautious, um, cautious, interested. Yeah, you know, me using, measured. I mean, are measured. you using machine learning today already, or small bit? No, not in the trading strategy, but okay. in research. In yeah. research, yeah. okay. Yeah, and in some of, in some of the peripheral areas, you know yeah. how how we allocate to to different markets, but like David, not in divining think, what's going to happen tomorrow. I think I could make a plausible claim without stretching it too much that we were using machine learning thirty years ago. Mm. I mean, the research work we were doing in the late eighties is describable as mm. machine learning. I think. Mm. I mean, it's um, sure. yeah. Was I mean, it, you know, machine learning is a subdiscipline of statistics and data science, isn't it? It's not actually. It's not machine learning isn't neural networks. It's definitely not deep neural nets. It is a branch of science, and what we were doing is a branch is a sub is a subset mm. of that branch mm. of science. If you go and do the machine learning courses at uh, universities today, they have a lot of stuff on, you know, neural networks in financial markets and this sort of thing. But there are lots of other algorithms mm. that you can use in machine learning. I think really interesting what's happening in Google Translate as, as in, in terms of neural networks, and that's a perfect example of where I think neural networks are incredibly powerful because there, there are no truly catastrophic outcomes. So the mistranslation of a piece of text, admittedly you could say, well, if it was actually used by a machine to then fly a plane into an area, like, <laughs> yes, I know you could invent one, but broadly speaking, there are no catastrophic outcomes. But if you apply the same logic to financial markets and don't take account of the fact that... You, that, that human beings and greed are involved. I mean, I don't mean, not, I neither mean greed is bad nor greed is good when I say that, but people are highly motivated to find a way to make money from their trading counterparts. In that world, a machine that learns how to do something in a theoretical world and then does it in a practical world is almost certainly going to have it, its head handed to it on a plate because that's what markets are brilliant at and markets are actually neural networks. They are hundreds of thousands of people motivated to make money, deploying capital and taking risk with a view to playing a game against each other in which they hope to be on the winning side. That is a neural network. That's a neural network operated by human beings, and that has proved through history to be unbelievably efficient. It's a vastly... Unbelievably a vastly efficient powerful, at taking money. Vastly market, powerful. The stock market's a vastly powerful computer. So, mm. so I know, you know, maybe Google can replicate that number of actors motivated. But mm. the way around I would put it is the world's biggest neural networks are already the markets. Mm. And they're unbelievably good at what they do. So beware. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely very fascinating. Do, I mean, do you do you agree with that, David? I mean, that's what they are. Mm. I mean, it's a bunch of brains, that's neural. <laughs> with a competitive algorithm where the survivors get rewarded with more money and capital, which is exactly what a neural network does. That's exactly how it works. Mm. Human beings turn out to be quite, we've got quite powerful brains. Well, let's jump to another topic that I think our listeners will learn a great deal from, and it relates to the importance of asset allocation. I think Ray Dalio, who runs the largest hedge fund in the world, describes asset allocation as the secret to his success. How would you describe it? And also, how would you explain the asset allocation process that is built into your investment strategies? as well as the benefit that investors have by putting a portion of their investments 
into strategies employed by by your firms. Marty, why don't we start with you on on this one? Goodness, um, I guess the the starting place is that the the way we think about asset allocation is more about um, creating opportunity. So there's no inherent prediction of which assets are going to be the the hot areas. What we're trying to do is trade as many diversifying opportunities as we can in a broad set of opportunities. So we want if if there were no liquidity constraints, we'd trade everything we possibly could almost in 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 equal quantities. But then you have to take into account liquidity constraints and the correlation between those different instruments. Then what the model does, this is one of the beauties of, of the trend following approach, is it identifies, it systematically identifies the opportunity set and does the asset allocation for you, ostensibly. So I don't view asset allocation actually as a separate component of, of, of the model. It, the model dynamically identifies opportunities and moves risk in and out of, of, of those opportunities. Sure. How, how would you describe it, Daly? I agree with Ray Daly. I mean, what we do is as asset allocation. Mm. Our systems are long or short, the world's major asset classes, and mm. they profit or lose thereby. The difference between Winton and Bridgewater is that Bridgewater, I think, is heavily, philosophically, it's based, it's heavily based on econo economics and econometrics, whereas Winton, I can't speak for aspect, but AHL and Winton are more based on mathematics, mm. mathematics and statistics, I would say. And we have never, I can say, we've never really had any economics in our models that may be to our advantage or to our detriment. Mm. But I just mentioned that because that is the difference. Right. But otherwise, we're an identical firm to Bridgewater in terms of we do asset allocation. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it depends whether you see asset allocation as something you do before you start trading yeah. or something that follows from the way that you trade. And I think that's a real misunderstanding about, and certainly in what AHL through the years have done, and I know that Aspect has done, which is, as Marty says, asset allocation is a product of a systematic approach to trading as, as opposed to an input into it, yeah. in that the whole, the whole point is you're taking, as, as far as you can, an equal risk allocation to markets, but if you instantaneously look at where your capital is deployed, it shifts like the shifting sands. That's the point. Mm -hmm. It's moving money around very, very efficiently in a very even-handed way, without needing a you know a you know an analyst to make some call that the next big thing is going to be whatever the next big thing is going to be. So that's that's a product or output of systematic trading, not an input into it. And I think confusing those two things is very challenging. Mm. I mean, you know, so allocating between different systematic trading strategies is extremely delicate and difficult thing to get right. Is there any point where diversification, which is, as, as you mentioned, it's the only free lunch, at least that's what we're being told in, in finance, is there any point in time where diversification becomes diversification, where you cannot add more markets or models and get an advantage out of it? Well, there's a mathematical answer to that question, which is that some, what you're looking for when you're building a highly profitable portfolio is things which have a positive expected return 
and low correlation with the other things in your portfolio. Mm. But you never know what something's expected return is. There's always an uncertainty associated with that expected return. That uncertainty may be greater than the expected return. The, the, <laughs> the expected return, the forecast return might be one and the uncertainty might be 10. In other words, over 10 years, so you may have... And indeed, this is the situation. You have no certainty that a new thing you're going to add to the portfolio is necessarily going to make money in the, even in the next 10 years. So where all the quantities that you're estimating, the correlations, the expected returns and the uncertainties are, are, are so uncertain, you, you, you know, there's, a, there's a heck of a lot of uncertainty in building, mm. in knowing whether a new thing added to your model, whether you're putting it in with the right, you know, if, if somebody tells you what the properties of the new, the return properties of the new asset are and the return properties of your portfolio, then there's only one answer. And if if the return is greater than zero and the correlation is less than one, then that will always make your portfolio incrementally better. Mm. doesn't mean you should always do it, yeah. but it will always make it. I think mathematically that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. sure. I want to shift gear a little bit again, and I want to address sort of the low return period that our industry has been in, uh, sort of a drought of five or six years uh, in terms of returns. And, and David, you've started market history going back hundreds of years. Can I ask you whether you can put this kind of market environment we're in in some kind of historical perspective? What do you think uh, is, is happening at the moment in, in, in this area right now? Well, I, I think as Mark said at the beginning, as Mike said at the beginning, we were trading quite fast and we didn't, you know, think that the opportunity would persist for a particularly long time. It's proven remarkably persistent. Mm. But over the years, the faster trend following systems that we used to use are, are not profitable anymore. Mm. And, you know, in other words, it is not, I, I never believe it to be static. My view is that, you know, these trading systems do get worse with time. And I don't believe that our forecast chart ratio from trend following or the forecast quality of trend following returns is given by the last 30 years simulation. I believe it is worse mm. than that, which is why I believe that, you know, you have to innovate and you have to, you know, struggle to innovate. So I, I think it's getting worse. I think what we're seeing is, is consistent with it getting worse. That's. I mean, I do remember, I mean, to tell a sort of story from back in the day, and it actually relates to, I remember David saying back in, as soon as the central bank said we're going to target low inflation, I remember David saying that'll be a disaster. Now, for many years, it didn't seem to be a disaster. Interestingly, I think it was only two quarters ago that The Economist finally, 15 years later, agreed with you that that was, gosh, that was a mistake. I also remember you selling a flat in Clapham because you could buy two carts of silver and have financed the Third <laughs> Crusade. Um, and so my, my, it's almost impossible to tell the difference between, you know, we've entered a low inflation, low interest rate, artificially low interest rate period for how many years now? Where are we? Ten. Ten. For ten years. History would suggest that, that the future won't judge this period kindly in that it, it has the has some very negative characteristics in terms of distribution of wealth, in terms of the motivation of those with capital to deploy it efficiently, its ability to elevate people from 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 poverty is removed because their debts inflate rather than deflate with inflation. And it will end badly. Yeah. Well, so but the point is it will end. So there's another argument that says, no, this is a temporary hiatus, yes. while the world learns again for the nth time over that this is a really bad idea, printing money and having zero interest rates. 
And when it does, it will end with a bang. And when it ends with a bang, it's going to end with some pretty steep inflation and trend following will make a lot of money, by which time there'll be at least one client left who will be able to say, or one firm will say, I told you so. Yep. And but, our, so, idea, our ideas so, are actually consistent. They yeah. are, I think, consistent because I didn't necessarily say you know, trend following isn't going to work. I right. haven't by any means reduced its, its expected sharp ratio to zero. But as, as Marty said earlier, if you have three losing years and then one bonanza year, yeah. uh, you've got a lower sharp ratio than... In, in the old days, we wouldn't have kept clients if we had a losing year. But then it was, uh, what were interest rates when we started? 14, 15, 16%? Yeah. I was going to make a slightly more up, up, upbeat <laughs> perspective on that, lest our listeners you know, go and sell everything, which is, which is number one, to, to David's point about the you know, decay in the models that we trade. Absolutely. But then the fortunate thing is, we all, you know, back to the earlier point, as scientists, we all sort of just started with, with the view that you could always do it better. You've got to keep asking questions. You've got to keep moving forward. So the static model, if you, if you leave your static system alone, absolutely it will decay. If you keep looking for opportunities to improve it, I think you can you know, be confident that when those opportunities for trend following come along, you will be able to exploit them. And I think the you know, second point is that we have seen periods of low in, managed low interest rates before, and they have been weak periods of performance. You know, po so post-1987, there, the, there was a very strong period of performance for, for trend following, and then a, a, a very challenging period while, while the Fed managed the, um, you know, the aftermath of the savings and loan crisis. And there was about four or five years of pretty ho-hum returns for what we did. And then there was a very strong period of performance. So I would, I would number one, say, you know, it ain't over till it's over. There, there is still plenty of opportunity out there. And then uh, number two, you know, you've categorized this as five to six years in the doldrum. So that's not, not our experience, I think there's been there have been some strong periods of performance yeah, sure. was, within yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and then the final observation is, well, if you give up on this approach, <laughs> you know, I, I won't say God help you, but I, I, I think that using a scientific, quantitative, systematic approach to investing is is the way it should be done so you know no, nobody is promising you a guaranteed 30 percent a year returns on the program but taking this approach of continually researching investigating innovating is probably the safest bet but also if you were to do to ask the question of investors do you believe that the current approach to economic management of the central banks and the current approach of the regulators to financial markets is sustainable or not, most investors would say not. Mm. <laughs> so I, I believe that the real challenge, and has always been the challenge, in, is, is how you make it plausible, possible, palatable for investors to do the right thing. It's not that they don't know what the right thing is. It's just very, very difficult to do the right thing. That's it for now. And remember, if you want to listen to the full conversation with Michael, David and Marty, please go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash RT11. That is where the conversation starts. Now, if you enjoyed this short, insightful clip from a past episode of the show, then I think you're going to love the free book I'm giving away right now. It's called The Many Flavors of Trend Following and includes some of my best insights on this perhaps 
the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. And you can get your free copy if you go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book right now to start your own journey. Just head over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or another podcast platform or YouTube um, where I will be back next week with more exciting and engaging conversations. Until next time, take care. <laughs>